the hard shoulder. All new stock. With the all new Nissan Juke. The coupe crossover by Nissan. Nissan. Innovation that excites. Very welcome back to the Hard Shoulder. Kieran Cuddy with you until seven o'clock this evening. And as I mentioned before the break, I am delighted to say joining me this week for the Thursday interview is Neil O'Dowd, founder of Irish Central. Neil, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Appreciate I, it. I, I'm speaking to you. Uh, you're in New York, is that right? Yes, I'm in New York. Well, what not is as <coughs> not as hot as Ireland, I hear, but quite yeah, hot. The weather, the weather's pretty good here at the moment. I mean, what what is the situation there in New York with regard to COVID and restrictions? I mean, is life back to normal for you? Very much so, but, you know, there's ominous sounds, uh, signs that the numbers are going back up, but um, 99.5% of the people who are reporting it are people who are not vaccinated. So I, I think it's very much under control here, but just a little worry because the numbers have started to dis- uh, ascend north, north ways going up rather than down, and um, they had gone down to very, very low totals indeed. But I think everybody feels that it's just an issue of getting more people vaccinated. Um, Mm. There's no fear of anything like the terrible scenes we had 18 months ago. No, no, and New York was particularly badly hit, wasn't it? Terrible. I mean, it was uh, very scary, particularly for older people and for people living on their own and... uh, People basically who keep the city functioning had to go to work, bus drivers, teachers, people like like that. They were hit the worst because they had to physically be present. But um, I have to say the governor, Mario Co- or Andrew Cuomo, for all his faults in other areas, did a very good job in galvanizing the people. And um, I think the uh, vaccination rate now is one of the highest in the country. All right. Well, listen, it's good to see that take up. I mean, w- w- with everything that has been going on over the last uh, little while and travel restrictions. When was the last time you were back in Ireland? The last time I was back in Ireland was September 2019. And I'm actually going back next week for the first time, which I'm looking forward to very much because I have a lot of family that I haven't seen. But um, I don't know, you got the feeling it was like almost back to the, the famine ship days where you couldn't ever, you couldn't go back to Ireland and... Uh, it's a strange feeling. The only time I remember something similar was when that volcano exploded and all the flights were cancelled. To be this distant from Ireland is a strange feature for a lot of people. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it must be. Can I ask, when, when you do visit Ireland, do you say to people, I'm going back home to Ireland? Or when you're here, do you say, I'm going back home to the States? <laughs> I think I say I'm going back home when I go to Ireland uh, more than the other way. Even though I'm here 38 years, it's still when that Aer Lingus plane lands in uh, Dublin Airport or Shannon Airport, I feel very much part of it because it's my childhood, it's everything I grew up with, it's what shaped me and, um, of course, family, which is very important. Um, When you talk about that childhood, um, you you, you grew up or you were born and bred in Thurless before you, you, you moved to County Louth, is that right? Yeah, my dad was a school teacher and um, he was teaching in Torlis and then he got a job in Drogheda. So we made what was then a, a very long expedition north to yeah, move that's from a bit, Torlis. That's a big to, move. <laughs> back in the 1960s, it certainly was. But um, I think he did it for a good reason in that he thought his children would probably all end up 
working around Dublin or going to school around Dublin, so um, it left him closer to it. So, so I think in retrospect, it was a smart move, but I did bring my love of Tipperary hoarding with me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> God for all the good it did. Because you couldn't very <laughs> well do loud. that football. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was it like in, in County Loud, in a border county, kind of late 60s, early 70s? Must it have been interesting, to say the least. Well, you know, it really wasn't something you thought about at all. You didn't really think that much about the border. The only time you thought about it was when you hear people were going shopping that it was cheaper up on on the northern side of the border. But generally speaking, people um, were pretty oblivious. Although I do remember working for a summer right at the beginning of the civil rights movement and uh, working in General Electric, which was based in Dunleer at the time. And uh, all these truck drivers coming from the north and all the, the anti-Bernadette Devlin graffiti on the side of the truck and the way that they would talk about Catholics in the north. It was just a, a, an awakening for me in terms of I was very innocent in terms of what, what was really happening 25 miles up the road. Well, if I had been speaking to you back then, I mean, say late 60s, you were you're coming towards the end of your, your schooling, we'll say early 70s in Drogheda, in, in the local CBS. What what was the ambition? You know, back then, the, the only ambition was very constrained for people like me. Um, my father was a teacher and I wanted to be a teacher. You never thought of yourself as being able to move like people do today, be mobile and moving up and down between various positions. I mean, the lawyers were always seemed to me to be the sons of lawyers. The doctors were the sons of doctors. It was a very rigid social and particularly insular kind of a society in terms of whatever station in life you had reached. It was quite hard to reach the next station. And so uh, teaching was on, on your agenda. I mean, were you looking forward to a career as a teacher? Was it just kind of something you felt, oh, well, sure, no, my dad just, did it, so no, I'll do it? I, I, what were yeah, your views I think on it? it? No. Yeah, I think it was now it's just something that it was, my, brother, my two brothers were teachers at the time. My three uncles who were Christian brothers were teachers. My father was a teacher. It was just like that was what we did. And then when I actually went into it, I realized, in fact, I wasn't very good at it. <laughs> and um, that I had to reevaluate, which was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. And that reevaluation that came, am I right in thinking, when you were on a J one? Yeah, I I went to Chicago for the summer. I was a fairly decent Gaelic footballer, and one of the teams out there brought me out. And um, it's hard for people now to imagine how insular Ireland really was back then, in terms of a young man growing up, and when you hit America. Suddenly, this whole place just exploded around me, and uh, there were so many things to do, so many different, geographically speaking, a country that was 3,000 miles long, uh, and as against a country that was 150 miles long. Um, like, I went after Chicago to San Francisco, and I remember just making a conscious decision that I wanted to make my life in America, because there was really very little back in Ireland for me. And I mean, when when we think of the great waves of Irish immigration uh, of recent times, say the 50s, and we think of people going to the UK, and it's probably then a jump maybe to the 80s and, uh, and, and the great flood of people to the States then. I mean, when you went in the 70s, 
were you one of many? Did a lot of people move to the States or what, what was the trend at the time? No, it's, it's actually very interesting. If you look at the, the 20th century, in the 1920s after the Civil War, in the 50s after the economic collapse, in the 80s, another economic collapse. And then in 2010, you have a huge group of people who came over as well. But I, I was kind of in betwixt the 1980s generation and, and the 1950s because I, I came over in 76. But um, there was a, a real sense back then for me that I just needed to get out of Ireland. Um, I wasn't thinking in any particular economic way about it. I was just thinking as a young man, it wasn't a, a great country to continue to grow up in. At, at, at that time, it certainly wasn't compared to what it is now. So, um, you know, it, it had one big plus in that it was quite rare to find Irish immigrants when I went. And eventually got a lot of attention that even though if even if you weren't a great Gaelic footballer, the fact that you were from Ireland made it very easy to transition. And that's that's one of the things I always take with me and I've often talked to the president of GA who's also an immigrant from Ireland. Just how much the GA meant to people like me back then in terms of landing in a country where I had no relatives, uh, no connections, and immediately playing for a team getting a bunch of guys and women around me, making friends, uh, having someone who gave me a job. I mean, the GA was an incredible, and still is, a social and cultural organization as much as it is a sporting organization and uh, certainly helped my life enormously that I was able to enter into America and immediately become part of something. If you're just tuning in to us here on The Hard Shoulder, Neil O'Dowd is my guest this week for the Thursday interview. Do you still consider yourself, then, Neil, very much an Irishman in America? No, I consider myself, you know, to be quite comfortable in two identities, an Irishman and an American. I mean, I've lived here long enough to earn my, my spurs in terms of being an American. But I also obviously feel very deeply about events that have happened in Ireland and in terms of what's happened there the last 30 years, it's been a very exciting country to watch. Um, it went from being the most conservative country probably in Europe to one of the most liberal. Uh, you had major passage of legislation that I never thought I'd see. So it was always a place to be interested in, and particularly I was interested in the issue of Northern Ireland and how America was impacting that, mm. and uh, that became one of my big issues. It, it's interesting because, you know, when you, it's that old analogy of the, the, the frog being slowly boiled alive, I suppose. While we're living here and people live through change, because it's incremental, it's harder to notice it as much. Now, those referendums and those big changes, obviously, you know, we're acutely conscious of how important they are and how seismic. But you probably get a better sense of change from the outside looking in than, than maybe some of us get. I mean, can you maybe talk to us a little bit about that, about how much Ireland changed for you in between visits? <clears throat> well, if you had told me that Ireland would pass a, a pro-abortion bill uh, 20 years ago, if you told me that, I would have said you probably needed mental examination. If you told me that even that Ireland was going to pass divorce legislation, if you told me that the great foundations of what I grew up with, the church would be revealed to be rotten at its core, uh, that there will be enormous corruption in government. I mean, the country went through a massive transformation, and all of it, um, you know, in, in terms of how it worked out, 
very, very well. I, 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 the one thing I find when I go to Ireland is just how confident young people are and how creative they are in terms of their, their lives now compared to when I was in secondary school and that and the limitations that were there for me, either the emigrant plane or continue on being a teacher, which I wasn't enjoying. Uh, there's a lot more confidence with young people now. There's a lot more opportunity. There's a lot more emigration, not because of his economic, but because people want to see the world. I know there's been a lot of ups and downs, but there's been some extraordinary accomplishments. The peace process in Northern Ireland was probably the one that made the biggest impact on me because that certainly looked hopeless for many years and was really written off by many people as unsolvable. I remember talking to an academic about it and he said people actually like to admire the problem, they don't actually want to solve it to make it sound so difficult. So all those things have occurred in a relatively short time frame <clears throat> and I feel I've been a witness, but you're right, that I've been outside looking in rather than part of it. What, what Has the perception of Ireland in the minds of American people changed as well? Yeah, you know, I, I often resent this notion that, um, you know, the Americans come home looking for leprechauns and all that. <laughs> I mean, there's a certain percentage you probably do, but the kind of people I dealt with, uh, the business people, the guys like Chuck Feeney who put $2 billion into Irish education, who gave a tremendous amount of his fortune away, uh, people who got involved in the peace process, Congressman Bruce Morrison, who helped her on document and become legal, 40,000 of them. Congressman Brian Donnelly did the same. I think there's been a huge helping hand from Irish America, and it's not always appreciated. And I find that the Irish views are actually very antediluvian and very ancient-minded about Irish America. Uh, and um, I'm surprised how rigid they are. I know it's the exact contrast to how they think themselves, but by the fact of them thinking that Irish America is this kind of atavistic community that's only interested in coming home and, you know, talking quiet man language, they haven't moved with the times in understanding where Irish America has gone. And where has Irish America gone? They've gone to a very prominent place. I mean, I just look at the White House and... Uh, it's extraordinary how Irish a president this guy is. I mean, I know him for years. I interviewed him in 1987. And even back then, he was talking about his immense pride in his heritage. But he wasn't talking about it in terms of Blarney or stuff like that. He was talking about it in terms of identity. And the thing about Joe Biden is he, first of all, identifies himself as Irish. And I was actually told that by a guy in the British Embassy who said that they had briefed him. And at the end of the briefing, Biden just said, just remember, I'm Irish. And I think when you have a president who espouses that particular knowledge and aspect and affection for Ireland, um, that's a hell of a place to go. And we had very much the same thing with President Clinton. I mean, for decades, we were told in Irish America that we should keep our nose out of Northern Ireland, that we wouldn't be able to be of any use. And yet we went off and we <clears throat> managed to recruit President Clinton and later on, obviously, uh, George Mitchell as a special envoy. And without those people, there would never have been peace in Ireland. And that was a tribute to Irish America, which put its shoulder to the wheel, decided they were going to try and do something to help in, Ar in Ireland. 
and succeeded very well in, in doing it. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting listening to you talk about Joe Biden because we, we talk about him remarkably little here. I suppose we've got COVID to talk about, but it's just a comparison as well to the saturation of our news feeds with Donald Trump for, for four years. I mean, is there a real sense of change and change circumstances in the States as well? Yeah, there is a huge sense that if there had been another term of Donald Trump that we would have maybe, I know this sounds insane, lost our democracy. I mean, there's a story here today about the chief of staff of the U.S. Army warning people that there could be a coup if if Trump lost. I mean, when I think of that, that's head spinning because the one thing you always felt about America is the cradle of democracy, that such conversations would never occur. But you have the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff actually planning an eventuality where Trump tries to seize power after losing the election. So we've come to a very strange place, but uh, nonetheless a real place because Trump represents an existential danger to the American philosophy, the American dream, the, the concept of democracy. And I think he's having um, a profound impact in a negative way still on this country. But if Joe Biden hadn't won, I think we would have been living in a, a Putin-type state where there would have been autocratic behavior lining up the FBI to get his enemies, um, jailing people, a lot of very bad things would have happened and we came remarkably close. And it's still not over because he may well decide he's going to run again. Oh, God. And then we'll be back to that saturation of our, our, our news feeds. Listen, before we let you go, Neil, any, any plans for when you get home to Ireland? Um, no, just a family because I have uh, five brothers and sisters I haven't seen there in a long time. So it'll be a nice thing to sit down as a family again. We... Um, at one point, we were all scattered all over the world, but as we get older, like homing pigeons, most of them went back to Ireland, so it's always nice to... Well, are, you, are you going to be one of those homing pigeons? <laughs> no, I don't think so. My wife is American, and she'd probably shoot me if I said I was moving to Ireland. <laughs> she doesn't like the weather. <laughs> That's it. If she saw today, she might change her mind, though. I doubt it'll last uh, that long. And Neil, listen, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Neil O'Dowd, founder, of course, of Irish uh, Central. That is our lot for today's edition of The Hard Shoulder. Off the ball, as always, they're up next. My thanks to the production team. Thank you to everybody who got in touch as well throughout the last three hours. I'll be back tomorrow from four. Have a good one. 